And it's not just create a product, it's create a defensible long-term position in a market with a product that you cannot easily be just knocked off by competitors with. And that's a harder thing to look at. So when you're assessing your market, I completely agree. You're not looking at velocity, bestseller ranks, and just units moved. Hey, folks, this is Michael Vesey from the 10K Collective podcast, a subset of the amazing FBA podcasts that is geared to six, seven, and eight-figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers. I'm going to introduce one of our several sort of guest episodes from our sister podcast, The the E-Commerce Leader, which I do every week with my friend and colleague, Jason Miles, who's a Shopify expert and works with sellers who sell both on Amazon and off Amazon. So that gives us a bit of a broader perspective. And I think as we go into mid-2021 and beyond, anyone who's just selling on Amazon is in most cases, at least certainly if they're doing six or series seven figures, normally looking to develop off Amazon pretty rapidly. So I think there's a big crossover of those worlds increasingly. Today, we are going to talk about custom product development or how to create your own product line for e-commerce. Something that is really the next obvious stage from pure private labeling, but which a lot of people still need to get their head around, or if they've been doing retail arbitrage or wholesale sourcing, is new to them. In which case, today's discussion, I think, should be very, very helpful to you. It's something that I've worked on a huge amount of the last few years with clients. I'm very familiar with the process. I'm not claiming to be a world expert at it, but I certainly think that it's something that you've got to think through. And hopefully this will give you a nice overview in a conversational format, which makes a change from the interview. So enjoy this show. And if you enjoy the show, I would just encourage you to subscribe to our um, sister channel at The E-Commerce Leader. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the 10K Collective podcast for six, seven and eight figure Amazon and e-commerce sellers, part of the amazing FBA podcast family. If you want to scale fast, target a seven figure exit and enjoy the process, then keep listening. Moving from reselling physical products, whether you're drop shipping on Shopify or doing retail arb or something like that on Amazon, to developing your own products is a very big step. It's really the key to creating a valuable, sellable business. And that's the real prize these days. I know so many business owners personally who have sold their product-based businesses for six or seven figures. If you're going to keep owning your business also, it means it's defensible and the profits for the product line go on for much longer as well. But it is a big, expensive and complex undertaking compared to simply reselling other people's products. So today we're going to go over how to approach this complex process in a structured way to get you the best chance of a profitable product that gives you nice juicy profits for the long term and makes your business valuable and if you choose, sellable. So Jason, you ready to talk about develop your own physical custom products? I am, man. I love this topic and I got to be completely candid with you. This has never been one of my strong suits. And I know that you've worked with a lot of clients on this, this process. And I'm a learner in this regard. My background has never been to create physical products. And so I, here I am to learn and to explore. I do, you know, work with some amazing clients who ha- have done very, very well with their own products. And of course, my business partner for coaching consulting, Kyle, has done it himself really successfully several times. And so I'm just in awe and uh, would love to hear how this process should work. And maybe, who knows, maybe I'll finally figure out how to make a physical product that I can sell on Amazon myself at the end of this. 
that would be a great outcome. I have to say, it's not a quick and easy process. You've got to be serious about it. You've got to have the yeah. money for it. And I'm not really going to talk about money too much today, just because, not because it isn't important, just to say up front, it's seriously important. Yeah. Be well-funded. How much is it? How long is a piece of string question? But you've got to run the numbers. And if you're not really good with numbers, get somebody who is, because going to this blind and on hope is, mm -hmm. uh, it's never a great idea in business, but with this sort of stuff, it could get you killed financially. And so yeah. we're talking probably more likely in the tens of thousands of dollars than the thousands, although it doesn't have to be. So just to give a rough flavor, I'm going to talk any more about finance yet, but it's important. That's all I'm going to say on that front. <laughs> well, I just marvel at the people who have been able to do this. And you do hear the stories of people who have done it right and scaled and found their customer product market match and really just you know, hit home runs. And then, of course, you don't hear too often about the failures, but Let's walk through your process and outline here for how do you go about this? So break it down for us. How do you best go about developing a custom product? Well, I guess there's two sides of the same coin, which is the market research side and the product development side. And um, I would say two things about that in general, then we'll break it down into six easy steps, like all good, good webinars near <laughs> you, as everyone's been doing for several years in this space. But the first thing is what most people call market research, I call a very superficial idea. It's 2021. This, this idea has been out there for years. It's not enough to use Helium 10 or Jungle Scout, whatever your app of choice is. If you're in the Amazon space or if it's in the Google space, Ahrefs or whatever, if you're doing Shopify and your main traffic channel is going to be through Google um, SEO mm -hmm. or whatever it is, that, that is not enough in my opinion. Okay. What that means is you understand the, the keywords as they're being typed into Google or Amazon by the searches, but you don't understand the lives of the searches and the search intent is always going to be a bit of a guesswork. So you really need to dive deep, I think. And then the flip side of that is by diving deep into your market research, it means you're creating a product that is much more likely to actually exactly solve a problem for a specific consumer. So those okay. are the two sides of the same, same coin, really. Okay. So break down the steps for us. What's step one, step two, step three? How do you do this? What, what's the routine? Yeah. So this is the market research uh, side. The first thing is to start with who you are and what you a lot of people tend to start with keyword research. And I've, for example, worked with somebody who's 20 years a doctor, trying to do some random plastic widget he knew nothing about. And I, I just mm -hmm, said to him, well, mm -hmm. could it be that we need to tap into your expertise in some area? One, one example, an extreme example of somebody I interviewed recently, Jason Francio is based down in Florida, actually formed a business for athletes and hit one of his business partners has it is a doctor of physical medicine. So mm -hmm. as far as I know, in the British context means a, a physiotherapist. So really genuinely expert. Yeah, very expert in, and he's serving CrossFit athletes. So straight away, they have a competitive advantage built in based on who's on the team, which is something to really think about how you can get an, a competitive advantage built in because you have disadvantages already because you don't know what you're doing necessarily if you're first time out with physical products, or even if you're going to a new market and you've been selling on Amazon for 10 years or Shopify, it's made, if a new market, you have a built in disadvantage to try and build one in. So I think that's really important thing, to be honest. So brainstorming what you really know, it's such a common story you just expressed. And I've had these experiences as well, where we talk to people and they have 10, 20, 30 years of experience in a certain industry or vocation. And when it comes to them building an online business, they go in just some completely random, different yeah, dream direction. <laughs> and I just wonder why does that occur? And there's reasons you get bored of stuff and maybe the pitfalls in your own industry and you want to avoid them all and therefore avoid the whole industry. I don't know, but it seems very common for people to make that first error. And it really is a huge mistake because 
as we all know, once we're in an industry for a while, there's huge nuance. There's huge insider insights and perspective information that you need to know to operate successfully in a niche. And yeah, I think this is a huge one. Brainstorming what you really know about and what do you really care about? Who do you know in a target industry or market? I think is critical as a first step. Yeah. Yeah. There's a very big what orientation online somehow. It's what keyword should I be targeting? What product should I be selling? But it's the who question that really matters because the people that pay you, in fact, the only people in the entire business model that give you money is the consumers. There's lots of other who's like your suppliers. They'll take your money and there's Amazon, they'll take your money or it's Google and they'll take your money. So really obsessing about who more than what in a way. If you, even if you don't have a particular problem to solve for a particular type of person, go talk to them, which is really one of the things I'll talk about in a second. But talking to yeah. people is very out of fashion and it's extremely important. So that's the first thing, really Good. brainstorming, thinking about who, what yeah. do you really care about? What do you really know about? Because if you don't, there's nothing wrong with reselling somebody's product if you're not really passionate about developing their product, mm-hmm. because that is based on the numbers. But if you're going to have to go out and, as they say, get hit basically for several months of back and forth and some financial risk and some sleepless nights, you have to care about it enough um, to actually see it through. So if you don't, I wouldn't even bother entering the game. Mm-hmm. As Seth Godin says, the smart time to decide to quit is before you start. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's really important. And for many people, they come to the conclusion, I don't really have anything special to offer in any area, in which case I think that's fine. Sell other people's products who do. That's mm-hmm. a perfectly valid conclusion. But yeah. assuming that you've got some kind of starting point, obviously your ideas are not enough to know whether there's a market. So then you need to marry that with the, what I call that PIC product idea creation. Then you need to marry that with the product idea elimination. So you go through a bunch of ideas, which you turn into keywords and then run it through the usual keyword. Research. So this is, this is your second step. This is step two. Exactly right. Yes. The step is two what? Is, is to assess the market demand, supply and demand okay. based on keywords. So Google or, or Amazon are probably going to be your main platforms there. I love that. So it's partly elimination. Talk more about that. How does that second step work? Yeah, you need to build up a ton of ideas because you'll Mm -hmm. come up with a lot of ideas, be very excited, and then you'll find that most of them have been done already, (laughs) Mm -hmm. or at least to a degree where you can't compete. So really, you've got to look at supply and demand. How strong uh, is the demand? And that can be shown up in keyword research, uh, particularly on Google or on on Amazon. The the search volumes, and those can be seasonal in trends. So Google Trends Mm -hmm. is your friend. If you're on Google, on Amazon, you can see seasonal trends these days through tools like Helium 10. And then also the supply, you know, how good is the, the answer to the implied yeah. question from the, uh, the markets. Now that brings us really to what are keywords for anyway. And, and I guess what you've got to understand, even if you don't bother doing any further research, is what's the search intent. If I put a word in plastic widgets, mm-hmm. maybe I want the plastic widget, but that implies a problem that I'm trying to solve. So we have to at least reverse engineer to what's the problem that we're trying to solve. And I think that's really what defines a market more than keywords. And you know. yeah. I love this. And it just occurs to me that if you're dialed in on step one, what you really know about step two feels comfortable to you, but you almost in your gut know the answers to these questions or, or just they're at the top of your, you know, tip of your tongue, the answers to question to step two. If you're work operating in an area that you have true mastery in and, but what are the tools that you might use? I personally like Uber suggest a ton in terms of seeing what key phrases are out there, the volumes, difficulty in terms of ranking for them, other tools that you recommend to people as they're assessing the market. If you look at Google tools, there's a, a nice word 
There's a couple that I probably would have to look up and look, put in the show notes, but I think there's a keyword uh, tracker tool that is mm-hmm. writ like a super primitive version of all the other tools. Mm-hmm. Ahrefs is at the opposite extreme. Ahrefs for sugar is the industry standard. That's like about 99 bucks a month or something. It's not that outrageous. So that's really mm-hmm. good. I've used things every, everywhere in between for Google research. I, a lot of them are just a bit overwhelming, but on the mm-hmm. other hand, you're going to have to make your friends with them because that's going to be something you're going to have to keep an eye on yep. for, for the rest of your business career, I guess, if you're selling online. So those are some I use. I know you would suggest you've suggested in the past as yep. well. Love it. When it okay, comes to so, Amazon, it's pretty simple. I'd suggest Helium 10 or Jungle Scout. They're probably the go-to tool sets. Really. Got it. Okay, so step one, brainstorm areas you'd really know about. Step two is assess the market. What's step three? Before we move on from step two, I would just say... Um, don't get obsessed with the idea of the size of a market. It doesn't matter if somebody's making a million dollars a year, uh, a month, sorry, of sales if, of some, you know, I don't know, iPhone cover or something. What matters yeah. is what percentage of the market you can gain and can you mm-hmm. make a profit. So if it's a huge market, the only way you can make a dent is by having horribly low prices, which means zero profit or more realistically, you're giving money away in order to have the privilege of selling on Amazon particularly, but that could be true in any platform. So that's the main thing I would say, don't be over-optimistic about that. It's more about how much of a winnable market can you find, not how big the market is. That actually just opens Pandora's box in a different (laughs) topic, doesn't it? Which is, sorry to go meta on you, but you're really asking the question behind the question, which is, what are you trying to accomplish? And it's not just create a product, it's create a defensible long-term position in a market with a product that you cannot easily be just knocked off by competitors with. And that's a harder thing to look at. So when you're assessing your market, I completely agree. You're not looking at velocity, bestseller ranks, and just units moved. You're looking for customers who are underserved yeah, with exactly. products that are not sufficient for their needs. Yeah, That's what you're looking for, a hole in the market. Yeah. A hundred percent. And on that point, then let's move on to step three, which is the piece that most people miss out, which is talking to humans. Mm -hmm. Um, Forget about the tools, forget about brainstorming between you and your coach, go and talk to some people in the target market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are very resistant about this and I get it. But if you're resistant to talking to humans, but you're willing to spend, I don't know, ten, fifteen thousand dollars and give it to some guy in China you've never met, then there's something out of whack in your psychology, I would suggest, because you're trying to avoid the pain of understanding the people who are going to be giving you the money. And that's that's not wise. And I've had a real variety of responses from clients over the, the last while. I've really been consistently insisting on this for the last few sort of rounds of product development with, with clients. And it really does make a difference. And so one of my clients is uh, in the sort of outdoor dining space and he's got a bunch of people who are into the same thing. It's not his job, not even slightly, but his friends happen to be into this thing. And he's got a little survey together and he's got a set of people he can bounce ideas off. And he's now got a set of people that he can show physical products. Now he's got his prototypes made. So I really think it makes the difference. And this is what most people can't be bothered to do. So it's a low tech, super low tech, massive competitive advantage. So really it's a no brainer to do it. You just need to you know, get over the hump and be willing to go talk to some friends and get used to the idea of interviewing people. And I actually go through a process called uh, the problem interview from Ash Moria's book, Running Lean. It's mostly a little bit of an overcomplicated for me where developing a product, which comes yeah, from what another overcomplicated book. So basically you just go through and, and ask them uh, a little bit to define demographics. Who is the person? Although you'll normally know that going in in advance and then really talk to them about, give them an example of the kind of problem you've got. So he uses the example of 
a photo sharing service that he created. And when they became parents, they found that all the Google Drive was hard to use and email wouldn't manage to transfer photos. So his examples are from his product uh, dev days with, I suppose, a software as a service, but same idea. Mm -hmm. So give people a bit of a context and give an example of your own or maybe a a client's or a a would-be client. And then ask some questions like, what sort of problems you have in this area? And um, what are the things that annoy you the most? And then another part of it as well is going to be compete, what, what existing products you use, what things they do well, where are the gaps? What are the things that really annoy you about those? What things do you really need done? And this is the killer question mm-hmm. that other, other things don't do well out there. So those kinds of questions to really deep dive into the things that the keyword research has hinted at. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've even looked at the negative reviews on Amazon. And so you should, but this is a much altogether deeper connection with the market. And I think this is the secret source that isn't very secret, but most people don't do it. Yeah, no, this is fantastic. And doing this at scale, there are different tools you can use, of course, if you want to do it, not one-on-one, but Mm one-to-many. But nonetheless, both of those one-to-one conversations and then one-to-many tools would be wise. SurveyMonkey or other tools, polls, that kind of thing. Here's what I would say. I wouldn't say that SurveyMonkey or, or, um, you know, polls are a bad thing, but but everyone's a bit obsessed with the scaling piece, aren't they? And I think the first thing to do is to, to start with things that don't scale and then the ultimate test is whether people will pay you money anyway. And that's the that's right. way you get the best scaling test vehicle is, is Amazon, actually. And if your product sucks, then I guess you're going to know and you can kill it off and go to the next one. But yeah, I, I think the scale piece is definitely not invalid, but I would force, mm-hmm. if you can, have five, 10, 15 conversations with one-to-one first. Yeah, I, I truly believe you're going to get more of the flavor of what's out there than just mm-hmm. doing surveys. Although sure. nothing to stop you doing both. Of course, both and not either or maybe. Exactly yeah, but, but yeah. certainly shouldn't skip the in-person conversations. Yeah. yeah. And I guess the reason I'm so very quickly getting in there with that mm-hmm. is because a lot of people want to skip that awkward right. thing yeah. because it can be a bit awkward to, to ask something for a lot of time. And it is. And, and I just think it, it's quite a lot of hard work to set up and it's worth it. That's what I would say. It also exposes your idea to somebody's opinion. And that's always a frightening thing. And especially if they're not entrepreneurial in nature and they only see the negative components of it, you can really put yourself in a funk after talking to people (laughs) (laughs) about a dream. Um, But but I'd I'd rather have a funk now than a funk where I've also spent (laughs) $20,000 in in 12 months time. I see that a lot. If you're not willing to engage with your target market now, they're going to engage with you. And it's called a negative product review. They're going to engage anyway. I'd rather be proactive about that. Okay. So in your process, after you've done the, the research components, then it actually comes down to starting to work through the product development uh, process. So step four in your process is what? Step four, suppliers and samples. So really finding um, suitable suppliers. Often they're going to be abroad, but I've got Mm -hmm. a couple of major hints. First of all, forget about Alibaba. Everyone else has been Mm -hmm. using it for a long time. You're inviting the competition there. You'll also have very little idea whether they're good, bad, or terrible. And China is not either good or bad. There's a range of my, my trusty iPhone and my Mac made in China, all the way by Foxconn, probably all the way down to the most awful stuff. So it's very random, very variable. So my second hint is use an expert. Find somebody who specializes in sourcing in your target country and preferably in the kind of production style. So if you want a traditional factory style, you're probably going to be looking in China, in which case my friend Ash Monga runs an agency out there. He's been out there hmm, about nine years now. He's Indian originally, then studied in the UK, out in China. So he's got real perspective internationally. 
another friend of mine, if you're sourcing in India for handmade products, which is quite a different kind of process and different things to look out for, as my friend Konark Agra, who's based in London, but is originally from India. He's also worked in America, so they're very international. So somebody along those lines, and I have, you could be those guys, if you want to check out the show notes, I can put links, but somebody who really gets supplier due diligence, quality control, and is very structured about it, because otherwise you're just, you, it's a kind of very random mm-hmm. thing. You've got very detailed ideas of what your clients want, mm-hmm. and then you're going out and asking the world if they can help. That doesn't match to me. And if you're going to try and precise, fine-tune a solution to the problem, you need to have some control of the quality of what's going on. So that's my advice. Get an expert to help you with that. You're hooking our listeners up with personal contacts. So that's super awesome. Now, are these just some dudes in their apartment in London? <laughs> or are these like the are these real bi- company guy companies or what? Uh, yeah, they give are. Give us well, a little bit come- of. Yeah, Ash's company is, I think the last time I spoke to him was a, a while ago, so early 2020, I think will have grown since then. But he'd done, he's got to about $25 million a year in revenue, this company. Yeah. And Carnark has got an office in London and he coordinates many people in the world who are rural handmade producers, mostly in the Indian subcontinent, partly. It's just a numbers game. There are 1.3 billion of them, wow. um, but also in places like Bangladesh, Indonesia, yeah. etc., some parts of Africa. So great leads for our yeah. listeners. So that's really great. So the contact yeah. info websites or whatever will be in the show notes yeah, uh, for this. So Ash, Ash Mong, Mongo. Ash Mongo, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And Kanak uh, Oga happen to both be Indian, which is by yeah. complete coincidence. Great. Yeah. So Love start it. with that or somebody else. Talk yeah. to your friends who are serious sellers and you've done this process before and talk to them as well. And whatever it is, some personal contacts and some expertise is good to now, start with. You, this, this step is suppliers and samples. So that those guys can help us find suppliers. Talk to us more about the samples. What are you looking for there? How do you do that step? Why is it important? All that kind of thing. First of all, I would want samples for two reasons. First of all, for product development, um, I want to start with an existing product and modify rather than start from scratch in a lot of the time, particularly if it's going to be manufactured products. If you start from scratch, it tends to be more expensive, but what you'll end up doing also is reinventing the wheel. So if you start from scratch and you go to a Chinese factory and you say, I'm going to make this thing out of silicon mold, then maybe they've got to create three or four new molds for you at the cost of a few thousand bucks each, or maybe less than that. Silicon mobiles, maybe a couple of thousand, but it's going to vary a lot. But the point is, if they already have products, they're modular, they're put together from different bits, which is normally how things are constructed in, in mm-hmm. China, as I understand, then it doesn't really make sense to reinvent the wheel. If you can create something that's unique mm-hmm. and defensible and yours, you don't have to be completely unique in everything, as I understand mm-hmm. it. And you should, and probably will get a patent lawyer involved if you really need to be serious. The simple version, not being a manufacturer or lawyer myself, is that you should start off with something that they can make and then tweak it such that they can still make it relatively easily if you start from scratch then you're going to have to start the process of manufacturing from scratch and you're more likely to get errors it's more likely to be expensive and and i'm not a manufacturing engineer but this is my sort of pragmatic experience of it and that sample you're getting is just the best of what's out there that you think could be improved upon i think so it depends whether you're talking about manufacturing in which case what i said holds more true or whether you're going for handmade stuff in which case you might come up with something uh, from scratch with a CAD design or something like mm-hmm. that, and a computer-aided okay. design, because yeah. they're physically easier to make, and the scaling piece is less of an issue. If you come up with a uniquely shaped wooden product, for example, like a client of mine has recently, that's less of an issue to get made than mm-hmm. if you're getting a manufactured product. I would be more inclined to start with an existing product. So 
these are simplifications and it will depend on your situation but okay yeah broadly speaking starting from something existing and then improving it is is most likely to be the simple path really how long do you think that process would usually take this is a long time consuming process frankly if you're going to talk to people that mm -hmm. takes time to set up and go through yeah. and in an ideal world you could get that done in two three four weeks in the real world where people are working around existing day jobs and if, if you're talking about a startup if you've got somebody who's got an existing business doing wholesaling who's um wholesale sourcing reselling other people's products who's developing their own product lines i've got two or three clients i've worked with like that recently then uh they've also got existing products to to mm -hmm. run so the reality is this is normally a six to nine month process the whole thing you get launched yeah. Okay. And and you just sure. got to make your peace with that, or I just don't do it in the first place. And that's one of the reasons why I want to get that out there, like not being negative, but I think it's a very positive thing to go. This is not for me. I'm going to do this instead. Mm -hmm. um, so it does take a long time because even finding a good supplier can take a bit of a while, depending yeah. on what you want. Yeah. And there's a bit of a chicken and egg because before you know what you want, you can't find the perfect supplier. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you've got to start off with an existing product and send it to somebody like you know Ash and say. I want a supplier who can make stuff like this. What do you recommend? That's interesting. Okay, sure. Yeah. Okay, so let's say you got the supplier, you've got the samples. What's the next step in the process? So the next step in the process, again, this is the the bit, rather than the pure private label play, I, you're going to customize it. So basically, based on your interviews, I think you probably need to come up with the first prototype yourself. So customize either you go straight to your prototype and you don't mm -hmm. bother with any existing products, particularly mm -hmm. with rural handmade, that's less of an issue. Or you start with an existing product and you can literally just rip bits off existing products, um, tape them together with gaffer, with, what do you call that, strong ta masking tape or whatever. Duct tape. That's Duct tape, that's the strong <laughs> stuff. Uh, yeah, not masking tape. Stick it in a jiffy bag and send it off to a factory in China and say, make one like this, because <laughs> wow. they're very good at that. So you really? can literally do that. Yeah, it's primitive and it's not necessarily recommended, but it can, as a first prototype, it, you could do worse. Yeah. Put it this way, if you're going to keep things going, mm -hmm. because what's going to happen is you get that back and you look at it, you think that's pretty rubbish, but mm -hmm. you, you can then at some point, either the first or second prototype, you can take it to your people that you've collected so carefully and interviewed and go back to them and say, right, this is one of the solutions we're thinking of to solve your problem. Give it to them to use. For example, I've got a client who's, who's also in the outdoor sort of dining space, who's literally just had a product made. It actually wasn't in China. It was in the UK which is also possible on, in the US as well these days. And he's given it to his sister to go and try out and to see if she can destroy it, basically. Giving people products mm -hmm. to try out, even to the point of destruction, is a really important part of the process. Because if oh, you don't do that right. now, you put it out to Amazon times a thousand units, having spent 20,000 or whatever it is, 10,000, 5,000 at the least. And they're going to give you the feedback, but it's called a negative review. So it's mm -hmm. much better to do it at a tiny scale. It takes longer and it's frustrating. But those are the choices you either get to do it at scale and risk losing your money and getting horrible reviews publicly, or you get to do it under your control. So I would advise the, the latter. I think it's important for us to spend a couple minutes talking about the nature of customization, because if you really think about what's happened prior to your work in a market space, the person who's made the best product out is probably more familiar with all of these issues than you ever will be, or unless you are really into it and you can catch up with them in terms of their technical competency. There are probably reasons why they didn't do what you're doing. So <laughs> let's talk through that. So sure. it could be, for example, in some space that there's just a cheap version and the expensive version, the prior manufacturer decided not to pursue. It's just, it's too costly to do it the way you think customers will want it or the way customers have expressed that they want it. 
And someone made cost trade-offs to make a cheap version. And making an expensive version is a risk because you'd have to go upscale in terms of your price points. You'd have to say, this is a premium version. There's a reason it's twice as much or whatever in terms of cost, but it's what customers said they wanted in terms of functionality or whatever. And I think that's one track. The other track that can commonly occur is there's not a specific use case for certain niche audience where a lot of times products are used by people for various reasons and there's a core user community. And then there's sort of like the second or third user community. That's a smaller user community in a different context and really breaking those apart and saying, okay, this product that everyone's using is really only for people who, I don't know, I'm just making this up, only use a desktop computer. But as it happens, many people have a tablet now, iPad or whatever. And so we need to make a version for them specifically. So it's a niche down. And there are many, many such customization angles that I think are important to think through. You have to make hard choices that the other manufacturers have already been involved with and thought through and said, no, that's not a good idea. And that contrarian work is really the risk of it all. It is. It's not easy stuff. I'm, I was about to say nobody promised it would be easy. That's not true. Many people have promised it would be easy. And I end up talking to some of those guys yeah. as potential clients. And I, I'm the reality check guy sometimes, which is not fun, but it is hard. What I would say is this, that there's a, a very good part of the star principle by Richard Koch, which is one of my favorite books, mm-hmm. um, such great business strategy book. And the guy's made himself very rich by following it as well. But one of the things he says is um, looking for profitable variation when it comes to product mm-hmm. design. Which is to say, a lot of things you can do to a product to make it better will make it more expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, It will make it more complex as well and more likely to break and a lot of downsides. So if you can simplify something, but in a way that still retains the function that the client or the customer really cares about, that is the gold. And that often takes a lot of digging around to figure out what you want to get rid of, actually, rather than what you add. Bruce Lee said something like that. He said the ultimate in cultivation is reduction or something. And there are a lot of modern design principles seem to work on that. I've always got my favorite example to hand, which is my trusty iPhone stand, which is just very minimal. Okay, it's not very defensible, which is the mm-hmm. downside is simple. Mm-hmm. That's what patents are for though, isn't it? Because when you simplify things down, then everyone else does want to copy it. And that's when you need to have a, a, a legal defensive strategy. And I'm not going to get into that because it gets too broad. But part of your product development strategy probably does need to be a legal defense strategy because it is uh, easy to copy once somebody's gone through the hard work of figuring out what to leave out, what to leave in. So, you know, that it is quite an involved business in the end. It, it's hard to simplify it down, but I don't think you necessarily need to reach, reach for the lawyers right at the start if you're on a limited budget. There. Certainly not before you've actually got it into the market in a mass scale anyway. Yeah. There's, of course, a great list that I was just looking to see if I can pull up, but I can't, but it's Paul Hawkins' list from Growing a Business, where he talks about ways to improve Uh, products. And he has a whole breakdown of ideas, make it faster, make it stronger, make it lighter, make it, there's many such customization ideas. So anyway, all that to say, I think this is a huge step. And this is really where you will either make magic happen for customers or you'll make a false start where you bring something to the market and people are like, nah, not so much. Didn't really get it right, Bo. Yeah, exactly. But the thing I'm trying to do with the the way we work is 
to get that done quickly and privately rather mm. than at a scale. So yeah, at least sure. if you have 10 people who really love your product, yeah. you might find 100. And if you can find 100, and that's literally what I would suggest is after you've got it to the point of mass customization, I would I would try and get the smallest run you can get and, and get it out there at a small scale, test it and iterate. Really the secret to all this stuff, I was speaking to Jason Francioso and I was saying, how come you've done so incredibly well with weightlifting belts? So many other people have done it. Number one, let us not forget, really important. He had a genuine medically qualified expert on the team. Now that's hard to beat. Not everyone's going to have that, but if you have 20 years experience in an industry mm -hmm. or one of your contacts does, or even somebody you employ to do your product development, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, that gives you that edge. But the other thing he said is that we just keep innovating. Whenever we go back to the factory, we, we take the feedback from the customers and they're super plugged into the customers. Yeah. They literally go to conferences with them where their products are on stage. It's, it's crazy. However you do that to iterate each time and just tweak and tweak, that's also part of the key. So the product development doesn't happen and then stop. It, it's a continuous thing, really. Yeah. So you've mentioned a guy, Ash Maru. I don't know how to say his last name. I'm not sure if you do either, but yeah, but you've talked about him before for prior books that you've looked at. And then I was in Amazon bookstore yesterday in uh, Seattle area and came across a book that looked amazing. And Amazon bookstores is a real cut down list of sort of amazing books. And it was called Lean Scaling or Scaling Lean. And I started to browse through it and it just looked fantastic. And then I noticed it was the same author that you've referenced a bunch as it relates to this type of work. So the Lean Scaling is a book I had. What's his prior book? And you're a fan of that one, right? Yeah, it's called Running Lean. And, and to be honest, I'm not necessarily a fan of the whole book. I'm a okay. real fan of, I think it's specifically chapters seven and eight for these two interviews, just because I found them to be really pragmatic. The rest of it, there's a lot of lean canvas work, which I probably mm -hmm. didn't grasp, which is also a very good concept, which I was probably wanted to simplify <laughs> past mm -hmm. that, particularly for people who are new to, to private labeling or custom product, I should mm -hmm. say. But yeah, it's worth reading for sure, depending on how conceptually you like to be. Yeah. So it sounds to me like his first book, the one that you've mentioned, Lean Scaling, is that it? I no, sorry. Think lean, I think. <laughs> running lean, running lean, and then lean scaling. So read yeah. running lean chapter six and seven first, and then lean scaling looks amazing I, as well. I think that's the chapters. I, in any case, they're called, I think, the problem interviewed and the solution interview, which is okay. basically, in other words, find out what people have as a problem, go get yeah. it, which is the sourcing piece, and then go and give it to them and say, what do you think? And if they say, oh, actually, it sucks, then do not <laughs> go and get a thousand of those made because you're probably going to get a similar reaction. Yes, you could argue about the statistical relevance of 10 people, but on the other hand, if you put a thousand, if you make a thousand sales on Amazon, you're probably going to get a 1% review rate. So you get about 10 responses. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference is that can kill your confusion conversion rate on any future sales. Whereas yeah. if 10 people privately tell you that a product sucks, then it's a good idea to go and, and iterate on it, I would say. Hey folks, thank you so much for listening to another episode. We've been busy diving into how to create your own product line for e-commerce, whether for an Amazon-based business or Shopify or indeed any other platform. Um, we really have gone through quite a bit of work today. So the product research side or market research, as I would probably prefer to call it, the brainstorming and understanding who you know, what you know, not abandoning who you are when you come to developing physical products if it's new for you, or if you've been reselling a lot of types of products, again, not abandoning your expertise that you've grown over possibly decades of reselling other people's products to a market 
The second step is to assess the market, doing your keyword research. Obviously, that's the most discussed piece and the commonest, but it's still going to be done and done well. The main clue there being, of course, not to enter massive markets that you cannot make a dent in. As they say, the riches are in the niches if you're in America or the riches in the niches. It doesn't really work in English. The third step is to interview potential clients. Now, to do that at scale is quite tricky if you've been in the business for 20, 30 years and you are selling existing products and your clients very well, then you could probably skip this. But if you are new to selling physical products or product development, I would strongly advise, at least for the first few products, going through a process like this, trying to do things at scale before whether you've nailed it is, in my experience, always a mistake. There's to say, nail it, then scale it. So understand your customers really well. And then in the next um, episode, we'll go into the product development side itself a bit more. But you can't really separate good quality market research from good product development, in my opinion. And here's why. Because if you develop a product that isn't really fine-tuned to what the market wants, it's going to be hard to sell. It's going to be hard to sell at a decent sales velocity or with a good conversion rate, making it more affordable and profitable. And it's harder to sell at a good price, making it, again, more profitable. So the more you can develop a product that's exactly geared to your market, in my opinion, the more likely that thing is to take off and take off at a great profit for you and your business as well. So if you've enjoyed today, don't forget to subscribe. Jason and myself have done a lot of work with coaching clients for several years now. So if you wanted to work with me, just go to amazingfba.com forward slash mentoring. I only work with businesses that already have revenue. If you're in the early stages and your first $10,000, $20,000 a month, then I can help you. I can also help those who have a lot of wholesale or reselling experience who are starting to develop their own products. That's something else I work on. If you wanted to work with Jason or Kyle, just go to winning on shopify.com they're actually going to be rebranding more broadly than that but th that will always redirect so winning on shopify.com to find out more about working with jason and his business partner kyle just remains for me to say thank you so much for listening keep listening and don't forget to subscribe and uh, we'll speak to you in the next episode about the detail of how to source products and how to develop products in a way that means you maximize the chance that people will love your product and pay you great money for it Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the 10K Collective podcast for six and seven figure Amazon sellers. I really hope you found the show helpful to you. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave us a quick star rating. It will take you all of 30 seconds to do it, but it does mean we can be found by and help many more e-commerce business builders. I wish you fast and profitable scaling. And I hope you enjoy the process of building your seven-figure Amazon business. Thanks very much for listening.